God bless you folks. Wonderful to be with you tonight to sing praises to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about him uh, more tonight. He's our favorite subject here, and I hope ever more shall be. Uh, there was a dinner, you know about it. It was called the Last Supper, and it was the Last Supper the Lord spent with his intimate followers, uh, disciples we call them. It was on uh, the holiday known as Passover, and from the upper room, the Lord made his way with his followers downhill and across a valley to a special place on the Mount of Olives called the Garden of Gethsemane, or in Hebrew, Gatshmanim, the place of the oil press, and there soldiers pressed upon him, a whole host of the Roman cohort, along with the Jewish temple police, religious leaders, governmental leaders. They had nothing in common. In fact, they had contempt for one another, but their common hatred of the Lord Jesus united them. There they went to take him captive. They were armed. They had lanterns. They didn't need to use any of those because the Lord, we were told, stepped forward. It was his destiny, you see, to go through all this. It's the last week in the earthly life of the Lord. It's his passion week. Uh, it's his week of suffering. And so he just stepped forward. Who do you come looking for, he said. They said, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said, I am he. And so they took him and they bound him at this particular time. And just to give you a little idea of the uh, travels of the Lord, I think we'll have a map here. There it is. Oh, my goodness. And I get to use my favorite gizmo in the entire world. Look at this. Uh, close your eyes, because if I get you by mistake, you'll be blinded for life. This is powerful. Look at this thing. Unbelievable. So here's, here's what's happening. This is Jerusalem in the time of the Lord, just to give you a little bit of an overview. So this is west, south, east, and north up here. So the upper room is thought to be here on this site. And near it was the high priest's house, we will talk about him a little bit, and Herod's palace. This is where the upper crust lived, this part of Jerusalem. This was a very wealthy area. If you go down here a little beneath it, this is the location of the pool of Siloam. And if you keep going east, you see here's the Kidron Valley. It runs north-south. The Lord crossed it, going right by the temple. Here's where the temple stood on this rectangular platform known as the Temple Mount, and he went across the Kidron Valley, and he went here to the Mount of Olives, and in particular to this place, the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where he was bound, taken prisoner, though he had committed no offense, you'll see. They take him prisoner. Now, they bring him back across here, and they probably bring him, we're going to be seeing in the text, to this area, the Praetorium. So, uh, that gives you a little bit of an overview. The Lord was first brought, if you recall, to Annas' house in the courtyard of the temple. He was the prior high priest, but still had a lot of power, and so they went to him first, where the Lord was interrogated uh, disrespectfully by Annas. And then from Annas, he was led to stand before the present high priest, a guy named Caiaphas, who happened to be the son-in-law of Annas, and then after Caiaphas, the Lord went before the Sanhedrin. And the Lord's trials 
continue. And so we read, here we are now, it's in John chapter 18, verse 28. That's where we'll pick up. John chapter 18, verse 28. It says, then, so after all that I just told you about, then they, the Roman soldiers, the Jewish police, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. And if you could take another gander here at the map, can you see where some say the praetorium was located? I'll tell you what it is in just a second. This was Herod's palace, and it is thought by some the praetorium is here. This is where the Roman governor officed and lived. However, in the interest of accuracy, others say no, the praetorium was not here. It was probably here near the fortress of Antonia. This fortress was built by King Herod. He named it in honor of Mark Antony, a Roman emperor, because Herod got some political favors from him. So it is thought that the praetorium, some think this, was here in this area and not in this particular area. Uh, neither structure, neither Herod's palace nor the uh, fortress Antonia are visible above ground today. There's nothing that remains of them. You have to unearth them if you want to go down and see where they are. So they led uh, Jesus from Caiaphas. The next step, I just want you to see how many trials he had to endure before the cross. The next step was to the praetorium. That's where the Roman governor or praetor, that's another word for governor, praetor. That's where we got the word praetorium. That's where the Roman governor lived. However, in the Holy Land at this time, the Romans established their capital, not in Jerusalem, but on the Mediterranean coast in a place called Caesarea, named after Caesar, another Roman emperor. It's quite a beautiful place. Some of you have visited there. And so that's where the Romans established their government and their capital. What are they doing in Jerusalem? Well, uh, they were concerned that during special times, especially a feast like Passover, the Jews may get this crazy notion that they ought to get rid of the Romans who were oppressing them. And so they thought with this many Jews gathered together, it may be a time in which the probability of an insurrection or a re revolt was heightened. And so they sent from Caesarea many more Roman soldiers. They were housed at the fortress Antonia, just watching everything that was going on to make sure these uh, Jewish people stay in their place. That's kind of what's going on. In fact, uh, the Romans built a fortress, you're looking at it now, uh, or at least a model of it, on the Temple Mount called Antonia Fortress. Had these four towers. Once again, nothing of it remains. <coughs> You'd have to dig further underground to see uh, the remains of it. So the Romans were there. Now the Lord's first trials, I mentioned them, first before Annas, then Caiaphas, then the Sanhedrin, those are Jewish trials. They were all inaugurated and overseen by the Jewish religious leadership. First three trials, Jewish trials. After that, the Lord, in this text, is taken uh, to stand before Pilate. He's a Roman governor. And Pilate is the person who will start the Lord's civil trials. So if you take a look at, at this, you will see 
uh, a little analysis of the trials of Jesus. It lists five of them. There are actually six because he goes before someone twice. But there you see first, second, third trial, Jewish religious trials, uh, fourth, fifth trial, civil governmental trials. Keep it in mind. Once again, look at all the Lord had to endure even before he was impaled on the cross. So he's taken now to the judgment hall of the Roman governor, the praetorium, and the text, verse 28 says, it was early. It's in the morning. Think about this. Uh, Things started for the Lord the night before. He was in the garden of Gethsemane, and it was night. That's when he was taken captive. He was uh, forced to stay up all night, probably on his feet or knees. He's already beginning to get quite exhausted, and he's still having to stand before now the Roman governor, uh, Pilate. And the text says, they themselves, now here we're talking about the Jewish religious leaders, they themselves did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Um, this is the quintessence of religious hypocrisy. I, 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 it grieves me to have to tell you this. This is my people. Uh, this is hypocrisy. I, I have to be true to the text. Listen. They are about ready to murder their own Messiah. They are about ready to extinguish the life of the Passover lamb on Passover. On trumped up charges. To do so, they're violating over 20 of their own rules of jurisprudence. They are not people of integrity. Their religion and its traditions had a stronger hold on them than truth. They, they stared truth in the face. Yeshua, Jesus, their own Messiah. And they looked away. But they, they didn't want to be defiled on the Passover. How would they be defiled? Well, if they went into Pilate's house... He was a Gentile. Uh, he might have some non-kosher food in it, ham or something. And uh, they thought by osmosis they can incur a kind of ceremonial impurity and defilement which would disqualify them from participating in the Passover meal. Secondly, on this occasion, remember it's the Passover, also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You've seen this kind of stuff before. It's Jewish cardboard is what it is. And it's, it's flat, unleavened bread. We eat it on Passover. And the reason why it's unleavened is because in the Bible, leaven is a symbol of sin. And we Jews during Passover, um, we, we want to tell God with as much sincerity as we could muster we would like to be free of sin. So we rid the house of all products containing leaven. Now the Jews thought, oh my goodness, Pilate doesn't observe Passover. If we go into his house, there'll be food prepared with leaven in it, and we will be disqualified, therefore, from participating in the Passover. Again, all this is taking place while they are plotting the murder of Jesus of Nazareth. What did he do? He did nothing except to bring good news of redemption and forgiveness. But he was dangerous to them for a few reasons, I'll tell you in just a second. So while all this is going, you know, religion is a terrible thing. I don't care what you say. 
It's a terrible thing. People will go to war over their religion and spit in the face of Jesus at the same time. Religion gets you so concerned about forms and traditions and this and that, you miss the forest for the trees. I love what Paul prays. You know what Paul said one time? He says, uh, I'm concerned lest uh, you be led astray, you be deceived and led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. In my own religious background, it was what we wore, how we stood, when we bowed down, and when we fasted that got you points with God, according to our rabbis. No, nonsense. What gives you right standing with Almighty God is the right response to the Son of God, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So my own Jewish religious leaders were unbelievable hypocrites here. So verse 29, therefore Pilate went out to them. They wouldn't come in to the judgment hall, so he went out, if you can visualize this. And he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, I should tell you, Pilate was the Roman governor from A.D. 26 to 36, 10 years, A.D. 26 to 36. However, until 1961, we had no archaeological evidence even of his existence. And naysayers, critics of the Bible, would say to us, you Christians put such confidence in your holy writ, and yet we don't even have evidence of the existence of a guy named Pilate. In 1961, that was brought to an end. There were Italian archaeologists, and they were on an archaeological dig at Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. And there they were doing work uh, at a theater there, which many of you have actually sat in. They found the first archaeological evidence of the existence of Pontius Pilate. And it was called, it still is, it's called the Pilate Stone. You're looking at it right now. There's a replica of it at Caesarea. When you tour Israel, you see the replica of this. The actual one is in the Israel Museum, which is very, very close to where this was found. On it, I'll tell you what it says on it. It says, this building, Tiberium, by Pontius Pilatus, prefect of Judea has been built. And that was the first archaeological evidence of the existence of this rather cruel and obnoxious character who uh, is recorded for us in the Bible. Now, as governor, Pilate was a dismal failure. I'll tell you what he did. First time he came to Jerusalem, he came in with a, like a horde of Roman soldiers for no good reason. And they had these poles, these standards, on the top of which was a metal, each one, a metal figurine of Emperor Tiberius, who to them was a god. But to Jews, this kind of thing was idolatry and a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. They were repulsed by it. They pled with Pilate to show a little cultural sensitivity. He didn't take kindly to this, so he had his soldiers either clubbed to death or stabbed to death, hundreds of these Jews. You know, it's not a good start with people. And so they hated him from the outset. Then something else happened. He had a massive building project involved, involving the construction of an aqueduct for which he needed money. He raided the temple treasury in order to get the money for this building project. You do not do that. That's a holy place. So the Jews were upset with this, and they contacted 
Emperor Tiberius, who was a little more of a diplomatic politician, and Tiberius was was disgusted with this because even though the Jews were under Roman occupation, under Tiberius, they were given religious freedom and so on and so forth. So Tiberius contacted a pilot and essentially said to him, lay off, knucklehead. We'll have a revolt. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. We'll have a revolt on our hand. Be nicer to these people. We don't need them going crazy over there. Keep the peace in Jerusalem. And I'll tell you why I tell you all this. You have to keep that in mind because then what we are about to read will make sense. Pilate's in trouble with the Jews and with the Roman emperor in Rome. Therefore, being a true politician, he is going to do whatever he has to do in order to keep the peace and get both sides to like him. Why? He's concerned about keeping his job like every politician is. Not truth, just diplomacy. So you'll see how that plays out in just a second. Now, verse 30, they answered and said to him, the Jews, the religious leaders said to Pilate, if this man were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him to you. They're essentially saying, relax, Pilate. We're not bringing him here for no reason. Trust us. He's a bad guy. He has violated our law. That's essentially what they're saying. So verse 31, Pilate said to them, well, take him yourselves. Judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. Now, they're right. The Romans possessed what was called the right of the sword, meaning the authority to carry out um, capital punishment. They could execute a criminal. But that, uh, the authority to do that was taken out of the hands of the Jews. They could not do that. So the Jews said to Pilate, we brought him to you because we can't kill him. We want you to. That's essentially what's, what's going on. But Pilate says to them, take him yourselves. Judge him according to your own law. Now, you would think they would be thrilled about this, the, the Jewish religious leaders, because the Roman governor just gave them authority to do with this Jesus whatever they want to. So he said, by the way, if you think my people always obeyed that rule, oh, no. Remember a guy named Stephen? Acts speaks of Stephen, first Christian martyr. My people stoned him to death. That's capital punishment. So why'd they do this to Stephen, and yet they're hesitant to do it to Jesus? Well, Jesus was a far more popular and public figure. They had to get Roman uh, permission to take Jesus' life. Stephen, nobody really cared about. Jesus attracted a lot of attention. So you would think they'd be unbelievably excited. The Romans are authorizing the Jews to dispose of this troublemaker, this rabbi Jesus, who they didn't like. Why didn't they do it? Well, verse 32 gives the answer. To fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. If the Jews took Jesus... They would have executed him not by crucifixion. That is not a Jewish form of death. They would have executed him by stoning. That is a Jewish form of capital punishment. Well, what's the big deal? Earlier on, Jesus declared not just that he would die, but he declared the very specific manner by which he would forfeit his life. He told us in advance the kind of death he would die. In fact, 
listen to his words in John chapter 12, verse 32. He said, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, was he referring to the manner in which he will die? Yeah. Listen to verse 33 of John 12. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Jesus predicted beforehand that he would die a, a, a de death by crucifixion on a cross. He would be lifted up from the earth, and when he was, he would draw men to himself. Now look it. If Jesus did not die the death, he said, the kind of death he said he would die. If he died by stoning instead of crucifixion, folks, Jesus is a liar. Jesus cannot tell us about the future. He's wrong about it. If this is true, then our faith in him is in vain. He is not the Son of God. He is not the Messiah. He's wrong about stuff. Can you see how crucial it is? And that's why, even though my people, the Jewish religious leaders, are culpable and responsible for this, still it's a manifestation of the sovereignty of God to ensure that Jesus would die the very death Jesus predicted he would, in fact, die. There's more to it. If you take a look at what's said in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we read, just as Moses, this is a reference now back to the Old Testament, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so should the Son of God, Jesus, be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So the Jewish people, way back in their wilderness wanderings, as recorded in the book of Numbers, sinned against God. As a consequence, poisonous snakes came upon them and bit them. They got the message. They repented. They came before God. They said, we have sinned. Please forgive us. God hears a cry uh, of that sort. And so we read in Numbers chapter 20, verse 8, then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, will live. That's what happened way back there in Numbers. So a person who was bitten by a poisonous snake, as a consequence of his own sin, still would live if, by faith, he looked upon God's provision lifted up on a pole. That's a foreshadowing of Jesus. When we, consequenced by our own sin, in faith, look upon the one who suffered and died in our place, the one who was lifted up on a cross, we too are given forgiveness of sin. Can you see why Jesus therefore had to die a death by crucifixion? Because what happened way back in Numbers, many other things, are simply a foreshadowing of what would happen to the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus, offered for our sin. So, while the Romans have their way and the Jews have their way, no. Sovereign God is working all of this out. Listen here, folks. Just when you think things are in the hands of evil men and women, no, they are always in the hands of God. Just when you think someone else is calling the shots, just when you think things are out of control, no, no, no. Everything is really under the control of a sovereign God. So verse 33, therefore Pilate entered again. Can you get this movement? He's going in and out, 
in and out. He's trying to appease the Jews. He doesn't want to execute Jesus. He can't find Jesus guilty of anything, but he can't get the Jews mad at him because the word will go back to Tiberius in Rome, and Tiberius already jacked him up for wrongdoing. You know, he wants to stay in office, so he's going back and forth, working this out. So the text says he goes back into the praetorium. He summons Jesus. He says to him, are you the king of the Jews? That's what he says. Now, why does he ask him that? Well, the other gospel writers, so we're reading John, but there's Matthew and Mark and Luke. They record this event. The other gospel writers tell us that the Jewish religious leaders at first accused Jesus of blasphemy, but they're smart, and they realize the charge of blasphemy will not get Pilate's attention. It's a religious matter. Pilate could care less about blasphemy. So they got Jesus on the trumped-up charge of insurrection against Rome. So they said, he claims to be king. And we all know there's only one true king. He lives in Rome, Tiberius. So they changed the charge of blasphemy. And in order to get Pilate to be involved and own into this, they accused Jesus of insurrection. He claimed to be a king. So Jesus answers in verse 34 to Pilate, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? I'm overwhelmed, aren't you, with the majesty and dignity and composure of the Lord Jesus? Who's really in control here? Is it Pilate? I don't think so. You know what the Lord's doing here? He's giving Pilate a chance. He's bringing it home. Pilate, forget about what these others are saying. What do you say? Who do you think I am? What are your convictions, Pilate? What do you believe? He's giving him a chance to repent. And so you wonder as you read this, who really is on trial here? Who's on trial? I mean, is it, is it Jesus? You get the sense that it's Pilate, really, who thinks he's putting Jesus on trial, who is actually being put on trial by Jesus himself. And so Pilate answers in verse 35, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? In other words, he shows no interest in spiritual things. He's not interested in knowing who Jesus is. Leave me alone, says he. That's a Jewish religious matter. You know what he's interested in? What in the world did you do to get these people so mad at you? What, in fact, did he do? I'll tell you what he did. He challenged their system of righteousness. They thought you can be in right standing with God through good works and the doing of the law. Jesus said, no, all have sinned and fall short. The law is good. You're not. You fall short. Nobody has perfectly kept, complied with, and obeyed the Ten Commandments, let alone the hundreds of others. You can't establish right standing with God by good deeds nor by the doing of the law. Jesus said, here's how you can be right with God. It is by grace, not by works. Well, that was very offensive to them, more than you and I can even relate to. Their whole livelihood and being centers around a religious system of righteousness in which rules and regulations are imposed upon people mechanically. Nobody could ever know whether they're right with God. And yet you try, you try, you, you, you try with great zeal and passion, and yet ignorance of the means by which we're really invited to be right with God. So Jesus threatened their pride. What do you mean telling me I can't be right with God through my own virtue and ethics? They hated that. Secondly, uh, Jesus was challenging uh, 
Well, the whole liberty, you see. He was claiming to be Lord, and they wanted to be masters of their own destiny. And as a result, uh, they wanted to kill him. And so, verse 36, Jesus answered uh, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. He is not denying he's king. He's just letting Pilate know the nature of his kingdom. Pilate, don't worry, he's essentially saying. If my kingdom was of this world, I can rally my servants together, and they would oppose Rome. So it says here, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Jesus is saying, no, 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 my kingdom is not geographical. It is not political. My, 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 kingdom, my kingdom is a function of... Uh, Faith, not fighting. My kingdom exists when people voluntarily put their faith in me. I capture not geographic areas. I capture people's hearts, and my kingdom is established in their hearts. That's essentially what he's... He, my kingdom is not based on force. It's based on faith. Therefore, verse 37, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this... I have been born. Do you know that's a reference to the Lord's uh, humanity? <laughs> for this I have been born. Then he said, and for this I have come into the world. That's a reference to the Lord's divinity. He existed before the world. He came into the world. That's a reference to his divinity. Furthermore, he says, to testify of the truth. Folks, that's a reference to the Lord's ministry. Jesus, who existed before the world was, came into the world armed with nothing but truth. In fact, Jesus, we could accurately say, is the king of truth. Jesus is the king of, what does that mean? You can't know ultimate truth apart from a relationship with him. It's not possible. You can't know who you are. You can't know who God is apart from Jesus. He's the truth. You can speculate, philosophize, and guess. But you cannot come upon absolute truth with regard to you nor your creator apart from Jesus. God the Father sent the Son as the representation of truth. Do you recall way back a million years ago, John 1.14? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. Listen, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the King of of truth. And Jesus, who is the truth, said this at the end of verse 37, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Folks, there has never in the history of humankind, there's never been a person who knows the truth who has rejected Jesus. Once someone, I don't care how smart, once someone rejects Jesus, that person does not know the truth. Well, this kind of got Pilate's attention, and so he asked in verse 38, what is truth? Good question, Pilate. Humankind has been on a quest for truth through the history of mankind. What is truth, says Pilate? He asks a good question, but then you know what he does? He turns away from the one, the very one in his midst who is the truth. And so the text says, when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews. Again, he's leaving the inner precincts of the praetorium. He's going out again. He went out and he said to them, I find no guilt in him. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. Knowing this, what should he have done? 
You should have released him. should have let him free. But remember, he's a politician. And he needs the support of the Jews, and he surely doesn't want to incur the wrath of the emperor in Rome. And so he thinks through what would be most advantageous in terms of the uh, preservation of his political office. And so he goes out to them, and he thinks he comes up with a brilliant idea. He goes back out, and he proposes something to the Jewish religious leaders, and this gives you all kind of a an idea of what was going on. So he's in the praetorium. The Jews are, you know, there's like a big crowd of them now down below. There's Pilate, and he's going out, and he's making a proposal to them. We see it in verse 39. He says, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. By the way, there is absolutely no record of that being a biblical custom anywhere. We don't have any record of it. It's just something my people came up with. Just made this up. What could I tell you? Anyway, yeah, it's worth crying over for crying out loud. Anyway, but you have a custom, he says to them, and here's the custom. Then I release someone for you at the Passover. So here's what he says. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Now, Pilate thinks he's pretty smart. He's, he knows Jesus is innocent. He can't release him on his own because it'll turn back and be used against him. So if he could make this the idea of the Jews, he's free. Jesus, an innocent man, goes free, and it's their idea. Therefore, he gives them the option. This is your custom. I release someone, you know, during Passover. Who do you want me to release? Pilate thinks, oh, my goodness, I am brilliant. I'm going to be reelected. And boy, he must have been surprised when the Jews responded as they did in verse 40. So they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber and more. The other gospel writers tell us he was also a murderer. They were offered the release of Barabbas or Jesus. And surprisingly, especially to Pilate, they chose the release of Barabbas, a robber. A robber was preferred to a king, the king of truth, King Jesus. Why? It's because then and now, ungodly people choose ungodly heroes. Watch the news. Look at the entertainment. You see some musical concerts, and people go to it with religious fervor. They faint. They fawn. They go crazy at the feet of moral reprobates. Ungodly people choose ungodly heroes. These Jewish religious leaders, again, it hurts me to say it, but we got to be honest, were ungodly, thoroughly religious, thoroughly ungodly. And therefore, they chose Barabbas over Yeshua, their own prophesied Messiah. Why did they do this? Well, I'll tell you why. Barabbas never asked to be Lord of their lives. That's why. Barabbas just wanted to steal from them. That's easy. He never asked to be Lord of their lives. Jesus did. Jesus is Lord and Savior. He is a right to lordship over each of us. He requires it. He invites us to submit to it. They, then, people now, hate that. Why? Well, we want to be free. Masters of our own 
destiny. And so Jesus was even more dangerous to them than Barabbas, the murderer and the robber. We want to be free. If it feels good, do it. We want to make our own rules. Don't fence me in. And here's the very tragic thing. The opposite happens uh, when, when you resist and resent and reject the lordship of Christ, you find yourself being ruled by sin and self and Satan. You've had that experience, so have I. You think the unregulated life is for you, but when you refuse to let your life be regulated by the master, Jesus, you lose control of your life. You can't regulate it anymore. You've given over. you got to serve someone. But it's not Jesus. It's sin itself. It's Satan. So they chose Barabbas. Interesting name. It's a compound name. Bar-Abbas. You know what it means? Son of the Father. Bar means son. Like you heard the word bar mitzvah. Son of the law. Bar-Abbas. Son, Abbas. Father. Abba, Father. Barabbas means son of the Father. Look at the irony. They rejected Jesus, the true, real son of the Father. And in his place, they chose Barabbas, a false son of the Father. Who would you have chosen if you were there? I asked myself that question. I like to point the finger at these folks in the text as if I'm different than them, better and above it all. But I don't think I would be. I think I'd be in the crowd, like everyone. I think I would be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Release for us Barabbas. I don't want someone being Lord of my life. I would rather be on the throne of my own life. Do what I want to do. Get all the gusto. I think I would be right with them. If you're honest, I don't know, maybe you would be too. Maybe I too would have chosen Barabbas instead of Jesus then. Would you? Have you chosen Jesus now? If you haven't, you've made your choice. Someone or something else has mastery over your life. That's the way it is. You're going to be mastered by something. It's either by sin or self or Satan or by the Savior. That's the way it is. Pilate tried to do what many people today try to do, and that is he tried to avoid dealing directly with Jesus. Don't talk to me about this. Don't talk to me about this. He tried to hand him over to the Jews and so on. He tried to avoid dealing directly with Jesus, but that's not possible. Nobody can do that. Nobody can avoid having to make a personal decision about Jesus. Who is he? Each person has to decide what to do with Jesus. Leave him behind and give me Barabbas or one like it. Or yield to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I hope there be not a person here who leaves tonight without making the right decision. Lord Jesus, you are Lord. It's going to cost me. I can't come and go as I please, say what I want to say, think and do what I want to do. I have to find out your ways. I have to submit to you. But I trust you. If you were willing to go through all this for me, Satan is not. Nobody cares for me like this. 
My unregulated life has not given me the things you could give me. You've proven yourself to me. You submitted to Jewish religious leaders and Roman governmental leaders and a series of trials and all this before even being whipped and scourged and mocked and stripped and impaled on a cross. I hope you say, Jesus is the Lord for me. Of course it'll cost me. I can't go to the movies I used to go to. I can't drink what I used to drink. I can't smoke what I used to smoke. I can't sleep around. Worth it. Garbage. For the sake of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Someone's going to rule your life. Is it going to be Jesus? Or you might as well say, no, I want the murderer Robert Barabbas to be in control. Folks, Jesus is Lord. He demonstrated it. You'll have to wait until next week and the weeks after. Because after they did this terrible thing to him, up from the grave he arose. He's a risen Savior. Oh, my goodness. He proves his lordship over death. He surely should be invited to exercise his lordship over our lives. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. He's risen from the dead. Every knee one day shall bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, nobody else, Jesus Christ is Lord. I beseech you, I, I, I implore you, I beg you, get a jump start on that inevitability. Bow before him now. Even tonight, before you leave, there'll be people waiting to meet with you in the Connection Center to discuss these things, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, your situation. They'll pray with you. They'll answer your questions. They'll give you resources. This is an important decision. I hope you make the right one. Well, listen, would you stand to your feet? I think we should sing that song on the way out, just the chorus, because I don't know the rest of the words. But this is a good one to take with us, and our wonderful people backstage have uh, provided the words for us. Let's sing, and you've got to hurry up and get into this, because as you know by now, I can't sing. But we'll try. Listen. He is, thank you, he is, <clears throat> he is risen from, he is, one day, every, and every tongue, here's what they'll confess, that he is Lord. God bless you folks. Go yielded to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. See you next time.